0: everyone welcome back to here in apologetics is always brought to you by you with your support patreon.com today i'm joined by dr ryan mullins um he's published over 30 essays and books and all kinds of things on models of god philosophy of time the trinity the problem of evil basically just all the big scary topics no one else wants to talk about um but ryan thanks for joining me yeah thank you yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today. We're going to be talking about um, divine simplicity and kind of like your objections to it and just different things along these lines. Um, so just to start off, could you talk a bit like about like who you are and like what you do?
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So as you mentioned, um, I'm a philosophical theologian who works on lots of issues related to models of God. A lot of my work has been on like philosophy of time as it relates to models of God and more recently philosophy of emotion. So um I'm currently I'm a senior research fellow at something called the uh, Collegium for Advanced Studies which is, hu- is at the University of Helsinki so I'm in Finland right now doing this whole Finnish lifestyle uh, whatever that means <laughs> and then um uh, and then so like my first book was called The End of the Timeless God which was published through Oxford University Press in 2016 and then my most recent book was called God in Emotion which was published through Cambridge University Press uh, in August of 2020 and then right now I'm working on a new book project, which is just looking at uh, alternative models of God that have, want to affirm divine temporality. And so the working title is called from divine time maker to divine watchmaker.
0: Mm, that's exciting. What's the life like in Finland right now? Um, I had a friend who played volleyball there professionally for a little bit, and it's a lot different than the States I'd feel like, but what's like it there?
1: Uh, compared to other European countries it feels more American to me than, so well, I mean, I was living in the UK for the last several years and it, this feels much more American to me than, than the United Kingdom does. The English is a bit more American. They don't understand me when my accent shifts to like a more British accent. So I had to speak more American. And so my wife is like, you sound way more American than I've ever heard you before. So I you know, I kind of adjusted pretty quickly, I guess. Um, yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah. exciting. So going into the doctrine of divine simplicity, could you talk a little bit about like, just like the basics of what it is. Um, And I guess before that you could talk about like what got you interested in the doctrine of divine simplicity.
1: Okay. So yeah, what got me interested in it um, was was two things. Like originally I just wanted to know more about the classical tradition. I was trying to understand the classical doctrine of God. If I wanted to know that, then simplicity is part of the package deal of, of, of classical theism. Another thing that happened, it was this incident during my PhD. Uh, so when I was studying my, during my PhD, I was asked to give a talk for the theology seminar, just kind of giving my reflections on the doctrine of divine simplicity. And so as I was giving my talk, um, there was this one person in the audience that was actually the moderator for the talk that was being incredibly rude, just like kept rolling his eyes over and over again as I'm presenting, and then scoffed so much that everybody in the audience like started getting really distracted. And so I had to pause and say, do you need a glass of water? You know. A few years later, the person kind of sort of apologized for that behavior. But what struck me about that incident, like when it first happened was this is a doctrine that like is really obscure, like hardly anybody's heard of it. And I had this kind of prediction that like it's going to make a big comeback and people are going to be really like really up in arms about how like like why we need it to such an extent they're going to be like openly like mocking anybody who denies it. And so I was like, okay, that's weird. Well, I need to look at this more. And it turned out I was right. The prediction was right. Like it really is the case that the people had this renewed interest in the doctrine. Um, so that's kind of what originally got me interested in it. But then like, what is it though? Well, um, so simplicity, as far as I can tell, is a very strong claim that I think a lot of people miss just exactly how strong it is. So first claim is is typically that it says like God has no parts, but then what counts as a part? Look, all sorts of things count as parts. So the way you typically see it articulated is that all of God's attributes and actions are identical to each other. So think of God's like omnipotence and His omniscience; and those are supposed to be identical to each other and then identical to God's existence. From there, you look at all of God's actions. So His action to create the universe, His action to send like Jesus uh, to become incarnate, His action for answering your prayer from Sunday night—all of those are identical to each other, such that there's only one divine act, and that one divine act is identical to God's existence. So God's Act of answering your prayer on Sunday night is identical to God's existence. But simplicity goes further than that. Simplicity says that God does not have any properties at all. And sometimes I hear people say things like, well, God has like, you know, these Cambridge properties or something, but I'm like, well, hang on. Simplicity says no properties whatsoever. And this is really explicit. So when you look at um, people like James Dozel, Catherine Rogers, Jeff Brower, Mike Bergman, Augustine, Peter Lombard. And so many others, they are very explicit that God does not have any properties, any universals, no forms, no tropes, and not even accidental properties like being creator, lord, or judge of all men. And you might think it's kind of odd to say, like, well, God can't have the property of being creator, but that is exactly what, like, Augustine and Peter Lombard and Aquinas say. And then John Scotus actually says, like, accidental properties are repugnant to the simple God. Now, it goes a little bit further, though. So, simplicity also says that God has no potential whatsoever. Instead, God is like pure actuality. And again, that's not all, though. Like simplicity wants to go a little bit further. So simplicity says that, that because everything that is in God is identical to God, there are no distinctions to be made in God. And so this is why someone like James Doze will say you cannot have distinct logical moments in the life of God. Um, but then simplicity also seems to entail that even conceptual distinctions like, cannot be made of God. And so Anselm, James Arminius, and Catherine Rogers are really explicit that you cannot even make conceptual distinctions in the simple God. And what's going on here is there's this kind of medieval assumption in the background that whatever can be divided in your mind, you could divide in reality. And so I'll further also, when you think about the identity claims itself, like if you really think about those, like there's nothing that in God that could ground your conceptual distinctions. And which is why when you look at different theologians like Aquinas or Moses Amarat, they'll say things like, well, you know, I just made a bunch of distinctions in my theology, but like those distinctions really exist in my head alone. They don't actually apply to the divine reality itself. And then you'll even see these arguments based on the denial of conceptual distinctions to try to get to uh, like attributes like timelessness or divine auseity. So this denial of conceptual distinctions, it's actually really crucial for a lot of different moves that classical theists want to make. So this is why I started out saying I think this doctrine is really, really radical. It's really strong. And people often miss how radical it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does seem kind of like almost just kind of a little bizarre. But say like i your divine pussy and like God's act to maybe like um, send Christ, like die to be like identical to God's act of maybe like healing someone in some sort of like physical capacity. Is that something entailed by the doctrine?
1: Yeah. So all of God's acts, whichever acts you want to talk about, they're all identical to each other. So there's one act. And then that one act is identical to God's existence. And so you'll see people like Bonaventure uh, mm-hmm. will say like God's act of creating, sustaining, providentially guiding the universe, all of that stuff. It's all identical to God. They're identical mm-hmm. to each other. So it's one act and it's all identical to God. So God just is his act of creating, sustaining, providentially guiding, you name it. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting. So why would someone hold to the doctrine of the divine simplicity then? Because it seems like if you've never really thought about these issues, it seems kind of like just crazy to wrap your mind around you. But like what's appealing about divine simplicity? that's dominated like even like church tradition for a very long time.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think today there are three broad reasons that I've been able to identify. The first one is just like an appeal to tradition. The second is to say that simplicity kind of like safeguards some some doctrines, like maybe like the Trinity or something. And then the third reason is typically um, that simplicity is entailed by something like ausseity. So when I look at a lot of different church, uh, Christian theologians today, I think the biggest reason though is, is something like the tradition. So like a bunch of dead guys affirmed it, so we have to affirm it for for whatever reason. And a lot of discussions that I see, they don't typically give the in-depth analysis of why all these people in the traditions uh, affirmed it. You'll find that, you will find that, but I think far too many discussions just kind of just skip over that and then just say, because it's traditional. And then a lot of like the rhetoric that I see in certain theological circles today that's kind of developed around the doctrine to define simplicity, like it's really over the top, like fear mongering kind of stuff. So the way certain theologians talk is like, I mean, it's like if you deny the doctrine, you're an atheist or something, or they'll say like there's something like really dangerous about denying this obscure medieval doctrine that most people have never heard of. And then the way sometimes evangelicals will talk about it today, it's like you're kicking the baby Jesus if you deny the doctrine or like, um, you know, if you deny it, you're automatically denying like the entirety of Christian belief. You're like an idolater, you're a Zeus worshiper or something like that. And so I see a lot of this rhetoric. And like, I mean, I guess to some extent I get it, because like when I look at the American political context over the last like 20 years or so, I mean, we're used to hearing lots of like really over the top kind of rhetoric and a lot of alarmism. So it's only natural that like theologians would kind of start to mimic that, and I think we're also living in an era where you have to make really extreme claims in order to just get anybody's attention.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't know. I mean, for me, I think if we're being intellectually honest here, though, w- when we talk about the do- doctrine of divine simplicity, I mean, we are talking about a doctrine that has zero biblical warrant, and and not only that, but I think the explicit teachings of Scripture directly contradict a doctrine. But like, we'll get into that in a minute. But I guess I'll I'll say this in closing for the kind of final thought when you do push through a lot of the rhetoric, if you can really like push a lot of that aside and really look at what the arguments are, it typically is something like, well, we need it to safeguard um, the mm-hmm. Trinity or to safeguard the claim that God is somehow like the creator. Only a simple God could create the universe. Apparently mm-hmm. uh, those are the kind of like arguments that are controversial, but at least worth considering. But what I typically see though, is this really trumped up rhetoric.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I was reading a book um, by Kevin DeYoung, who's like a reformed pastor in, I believe, Michigan. Um, he's talking mm-hmm. about, like, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And he brings up um, this doctrine of divine simplicity in the book, uh, kind of like, almost like we need to like, hold on to, like, traditional Christian values." And he brings this up for just like, just a little blurb, and I was kind of surprised. Um, but it seems that, like it makes sense now when I think about um, what you're talking here with, like, why someone would hold to the doctrine.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So the next, yeah. Feel free to add on.
1: I, I just, I just find this odd, like the places where it pops up. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't surprise me. That's just like, well, we have to hold this because it's somehow connected to all these other things about like the current sexual ethics of this culture. And I'm like, I, I, I guess I missed that part. But okay, sure, go mm. in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. It, it was interesting. um But what you talk about, we're going to talk about now is you hit it at this very briefly. Is like the biblical argument against mm. divine simplicity. um So why do you think Ryan, from like a biblical perspective? Um, divine simplicity shouldn't be like a preferred theory in terms of like models of God and such.
1: Yeah. So I think when we look at the explicit teachings of scripture, what we see is I think something that completely contradicts the entire classical understanding of God as timeless, immutable, impassable, and simple. And so here's an example. So the Bible, like consistently and persistently describes God as temporal, mutable, passable, and as having accidental properties. And so it describes God as having potential and a multitude of actions And it describes God as standing in real covenantal relations of like give and take or call and response. And it describes God as acquiring new obligations as he enters into those uh, covenantal relationships because he's making promises that he did not previously make and did not have to make. And so the Bible consistently describes God as literally being moved by creatures to feel happiness, sadness, or anger. And it describes God as literally having compassion and empathy, and all of which completely contradicts the classical understanding of God. But I want to focus just on um, the claim about accidental properties. So um, earlier, I mentioned Dun- John Don Scotus. And so Scotus says accidental properties are repugnant to the simple God. But I think things are very different when you reflect on the way Scripture talks about God. So Scripture consistently reveals God as having accidental properties and he, that God even thinks that these are crucial to his narrative identity. And so a really great example of this comes from Exodus 3.13. And so this is the, the burning bush story. Um, where Moses is is talking to God through the burning bush. And so when Moses is doing that, Moses says uh, to God, he's like, who shall I say sent me? And God tells him, say that I am sent me. I am who I am. But most biblical scholars like Walter Brueggemann or Terence Fredheim, they'll say that this is m- m- like better translated as I will be who I will be. And so this is a tensed and a temporal description of God. And so as Henry uh, Bloscher points out, this is a God with a future. And so it's portraying God as having a future and as having actions that God has not yet performed. And that implies unactualized potential. So God's basically saying, like, if you want to know who I am, just wait and watch what I'm about to do, because that's who I am. But notice what, what God says immediately after in verses 15 and 16. God tells Moses, tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent you. That is my name forever. And so those are accidental properties. And God says this actually twice to Moses. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so as Blosher and other biblical scholars point out, like this is a God with a contingent history. And so what we have here in Exodus 3 is God not only describing himself in temporal terms, but we also have God describing himself in terms of accidental contingent properties. So God takes these accidental properties to be so important that he declares twice that this is his name forever. And so divine simplicity says that this is repugnant, But Exodus seems to be saying, no, this is absolutely glorious. And so I think we've got a direct contradiction here in in the, in the biblical text.
0: Mm, thank you um, for kind of mm-hmm. going through that there. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing we kind of wanted to address here is like some of the, like more like philosophical arguments against divine simplicity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to get into a few of those. One of them, I think, is a very more recent thing that you come up with with Joe Schmidt on like the aloneness argument, which is interesting. Um, I've heard, I believe, I think it was Joe that talked about it once, um, because you like kind of break that down and like what's going on there because it's an interesting idea.
1: Yeah. So Joe and I are still trying to figure out the best ways to popularize this. So this is based on, um, this is a paper called the aloneness argument against classical theism. That's going to be in religious studies. It's forthcoming in religious studies. And so what we do in the paper is we look at some different classical claims and then say there's like some kind of inconsistency between them. So we kind of focus on God's freedom, omniscience and simplicity. And so let me kind of give you like, I guess, like some brief definitions of those things. And then I can give you like a sort of abbreviated version of how you could develop this sort of argument. So classical theism says that God is free to create the universe or maybe a different universe altogether, or he's free to like, just say like, I don't want to create anything at all. And, And so when, and so there's all these different genuine possibilities. So it's a genuine possibility that God could exist completely alone because it's a genuine possibility that God not create anything at all. And so it's it's it is contingency, is the contingency of God's what are what's God's called like uh, God's transitive will uh, that's said to ground the contingency of God's of the universe. Now, f- uh, further classical theism also says that all of God's knowledge is self-knowledge. So what that means is that all of God's knowledge is about his own nature and his own action, or what he's like causally determined or decreed to 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 come about. And so here's what you do with the argument here. So the first step of the abbreviated version of the aloneness argument says, well, just establish that God has contingent knowledge. And this is pretty easy to do when you just reflect on the classical claims that I mentioned above about God's freedom and omniscience. So if God is omniscient, then God has some contingent knowledge. So some of the content of God's knowledge is contingent because God's knowledge is grounded in God's contingent and free action pertaining to his decree that a particular universe, a particular timeline exist. And if God is omniscient, then God will know that he contingently created our universe. And then God knows that his act of creating this universe is contingent because he knows that he could have created a completely different universe. Uh, Or he could have just existed completely alone. So God's got some sort of contingent knowledge. Here's the second step of this uh, abbreviated argument. So you just remind people what simplicity says. And so as a reminder, simplicity says that whatever is intrinsic to God is identical to God. So for example, everything... In God must be identical to God's absolutely necessary essence and existence. And the overwhelming majority of classical theists say that God's knowledge is intrinsic to God. So, given simplicity, God's knowledge is going to be identical to God. And so that's why you see people like Catherine Rogers or St. Bonaventure say that God just is his act of knowing, creating, and providentially governing this universe. Here's step three. So, step three of this argument what you do is you derive a contradiction. Uh, from everything that I just said. So divine simplicity says that God's knowledge is identical to God's essence and existence. Well, God's essence and existence are absolutely necessary and nothing contingent can be identical to anything that is absolutely necessary. And so this is where you get a problem. God has contingent knowledge. And again, simplicity says that God's knowledge is identical to God's existence. But if God's knowledge is contingent, then God's knowledge cannot be identical to God's absolutely necessary existence. So we can drive a contradiction here. God's knowledge is identical to God's existence and God's knowledge is not identical to God's existence. So at that point you should just be like, okay, paale, quiero, fi, finito." Like this is like game over. Like, what are you gonna do? Okay. So what the, what the proponent of divine simplicity has to do at this point is they have to reject something that led to the contradiction. But here's the problem. All the stuff that leads to the contradiction is like key claims of divine simplicity in the classical tradition. So if you're rejecting one of the one of the one of the claims that led to this contradiction, you're going to actually be rejecting a, like some aspect of classical theism, and that's not like a good way to go to, when you're trying to defend classical theism. So that's that's the, a very serious problem.
0: So if you're gonna say like well maybe God's knowledge isn't equal to God's existence um, or the same as God's like existence then you kind of run into this idea where you have like parts or something with God and it's like kind of like a key part of classical theism and it just kind of falls apart from there is what you're thinking.
1: Part of it, yeah. So one response to what we do in the paper, the way we develop the argument there, is to say well it can't be like God's contingent knowledge can't be an accidental or contingent feature of God because simplicity says no accidental properties, no contingent features. So that's got to go. So what else are you going to be left with? And so it seems like your options are r- dwindling really quickly at that point.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so the next thing, objection I wanted to talk with you about is this idea of modal collapse. I think mm-hmm. this is kind of like the most common thing that's kind of brought up in this like whole divine simplicity debate. So you could uh, kind of run through like, in, there's obviously like different formulations of mm-hmm. like, like a general argument about modal collapse and um, why that's a serious problem for classical theism.
1: Yeah. So let me say what a modal collapse is first and then get into mm-hmm. the sort of arguments here. So like a modal collapse is when our modal categories of necessity and contingency get collapsed into just like one category. And so what I've, yeah, it's like you mentioned, like I've developed several different arguments that can lead to a modal collapse where like everything is absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if everything's absolutely necessary, then no one has free will, like not even God. And so that's usually, yeah, it's it's typically seen as a problem. So there's been a lot of weird and interesting responses to this. So I'll just note two kind of responses to this argument to kind of get people thinking about about this. So the first kind of response, uh, Catherine Rogers has this recent paper where she just says, let's just embrace the modal collapse, you know, like it just follows. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe we can figure out a way where it's not so bad. Uh, where somebody like Oliver Crisp goes, Ooh, um, I don't want that. Maybe we could kind of weaken the doctrine a little bit, uh, to like avoid the modal collapse. And he weakens the doctrine and divine simplicity in a way where God does have distinct properties and God does have potential, in which case I want to go, but divine simplicity said no properties and no potential. So I don't, I don't think that's divine simplicity anymore. Mm-hmm. But the, the emphasis, what I want to make right here is that you've got two very serious scholars going, ooh, this, there's, there's something to be said about this argument. We need to deal with it. And, and, and it's not the sort of thing that you can just kind of dismiss by appealing to like apophaticism or mystery or just kind of like some sort of false understanding of analogy. So here's the abbreviated argument. So step one, you just focus on divine freedom. So classical theism says that God is free to create or not create. God's act of creating this universe is contingent. And that's affirmed in the classical distinction between God's imminent and transitive will. So according to John Webster, God's imminent will or action is that God necessarily wills himself. And then God's so-called transitive will concerns God's contingent, intentional actions of creating the universe and providentially governing it. Step two involves pointing out something called the infallibility of God's omnipotence. And so the classical tradition affirms that God's intentional actions cannot possibly fail to bring about their intended effects. So if God intentionally acts to bring about the existence of this universe, then this universe must exist. And if God intentionally decrees that this particular timeline come about, then this particular timeline must come about because God's actions and decrees, they are infallible. And so as I mentioned before, uh, God's contingent act of creating the universe is classically said to ground like the contingency of the universe. And so the classical tradition wished to deny that God's transitive will is absolutely necessary. And here's why they say that. Because if you, you, know, if you have God's infallibility uh, of his power in view, well, if God's transitive will is absolutely necessary, then the universe and everything that happens in it is going to be, also be absolutely necessary. So it was crucial to the classical tradition that God's transitive will be free and not absolutely necessary. Otherwise you're gonna get a modal collapse and they didn't want that. Well, here we go. So we got two more steps in the argument. Step three involves bringing in divine simplicity. So divine simplicity says that God's transitive will or God's intentional act of creating this universe is identical to God's existence. And again, you see this in Augustine, Anselm, Bonaventure, Stephen Clark uh, or Stephen Sharnak, uh, Catherine Rogers, Matthew Levering, James Dozel, They all make that really explicit. And so it's like, okay, there we go. They just said it. Step four, derive a contradiction. So the classical theist said that God's transitive will is not absolutely necessary. And so again, God's transitive will concerns God's intentional act of creating and providentially governing this universe. So God's transitive will is not absolutely necessary. But divine simplicity says that God's transitive will is identical to God's existence. So, anything identical to God's existence, absolutely necessary existence, must also be absolutely necessary because that's just how identity works. So, if God's transitive will is identical to God's absolutely necessary existence, then God's transitive will is going to have to be absolutely necessary. And that's when you get a contradiction. You're going to have God's transitive will is not absolutely necessary because they said that earlier, and God's transitive will is absolutely necessary because that's what it follows from simplicity. So again, okay, Polly, what are you going to do? It seems like game over. Well, you can deny, uh, you're going to have to deny something in order to avoid the contradiction. If you affirm that God's transit of will is absolutely necessary and just say, we'll get rid of that whole idea of it being like, um, you know, not absolutely necessary. Let's just embrace a modal collapse. And that's why you see contemporary thinkers like Kate Rogers and Bill Valicella just say, yeah, just embrace the modal collapse. I It sounds bad, but you know, what are you going to do? But hardly anybody else wants to do that. And so it seems to me that if you really want to say God's transitive will is contingent, you're going to have to be denying divine simplicity because simplicity entails that God's transitive will cannot be contingent. So it looks like the only way to remove the contradiction is either just embrace the modal collapse or just deny divine simplicity.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so you don't think anyone could say that maybe like God, um, being like pure act has the, maybe like the option of creating different worlds. Um, but like, they can't like say that there's like no potentiality in God still when they're saying that, um,
1: God could create like different possible worlds. Is it, is that kind of like the line you would follow? That's a different argument that, that I've also (laughs) developed. So this is called the potentiality argument. And so the potentiality argument says, well, look, um, God has no potential whatsoever. He's purely actual. And then be like, okay, well, it seems like he could have created a different universe. And you're like, okay, cool. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, if he could have, well, that's unactualized potential in God. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems like God the Son did not have to become incarnate. The Holy Spirit could have become incarnate. The Father could have become incarnate. Uh, And then this is a very standard uh, scholastic claim that any of the divine persons could have become incarnate. Well, that's unactualized potential in God that only one of them came and the other two didn't. That's unactualized potential. And so what you can do, any way the world could have been. Any possible divine idea that does not get actualized into a creature or a universe or something of the sort—that is an unactualized potential in God. Mm-hmm. And what you see in Augustine and Aquinas and a bunch of others—they'll say God does not do all that He could do. And you're like, okay, but He's purely actual, but He has all this unactualized potential. That's that's a contradiction again. Um, so mm-hmm. so yeah, this is I think it's a it's a separate problem, um, but it's a very serious problem.
0: Definitely. So, what do you think um, is wrong with just maybe like if someone wants to bite the bullet and say, "Yeah, modal collapse is true, and um, God doesn't have free will, and maybe even I don't have free will." Um, though somebody say that, like we could still have like libertarian freedom if God just creates us that way and you just had to, or something along these lines. Um, but like, what's the, what do you think's wrong with the idea of um, just biting the bullet of modal collapse? Because I have a friend um, who I don't know if classical theist, but he definitely he believes that this was necessary because God is perfect. And da, da, da. like, what's mm-hmm. wrong with biting, biting the bullet and just accepting modal collapse, do you think?
1: So one of the things is it, it really does seem like things could have been just a bit different. Like I could have wore like a nice blazer instead of this jacket tonight. That could have been, it's a real possibility. But if you have a modal collapse, that's not a real possibility at all. And even me just like taking a breath and just waiting just one second longer to answer your question, that seems like a real possibility. But a modal collapse says, no, that's not possible at all the way things Mm -hmm. are is the only way they could be. And you're like, well, that's just really unintuitive. Here's a further problem though. Other than, you know, God does not have free will and we Mm -hmm. don't have free will. When you look at your standard theodicy, that's what a lot of theodicies say is that God could have prevented this particular evil, but he did not do so for some good reason. And you fill in whatever that good reason is. Well, if you have a modal collapse, there's no sense in which God could have done something else. There's no sense in which God could have prevented that evil from happening at all. Because on a modal collapse, this is the only way things are. This is the only way they could be. So there's no, so all your standard theodicies, they go out the window, they're gone. Uh, That doesn't seem like that, like that's that's that great either. And then further, one of the things um, I noticed in one of uh, Kate Rogers' more recent papers, she tried to sneak in a little bit of, she said, maybe there might have to be some contingency in God. And then like, a then she kind of goes right back against it. Goes, well, well, we can't say that though. We, we got to get rid of that. And I'm like, you're seeing like just how counterintuitive this, like this idea is like, it can't be like, this can't be the way it is. Um, so even like you're wanting to like, just go like the scream of our intuitions against the modal collapse. It's so loud that even you, it's like, you know, we're trying to sneak it in, even though you want to say you bite the bullet. So those are like some kind of reasons why a modal collapse is bad.
0: Yeah. Great. Um, time take we'll go to the next kind of um objection here we have one more worry and we'll go to a couple kind of like responses with classical theists and this is the idea of like trinitarianism and is like is this compatible with divine simplicity you do have a discussion with rob coons which is probably a good resource for people want to investigate this further but could you talk about um like the worry with like trinitarianism and the doctrine of divine simplicity
1: yeah so i think um like the answer is like really straightforward of how this is supposed to go Mm -hmm. so but sometimes i'll hear people say like they'll try to push back a little bit before you because like typically you just say like on the surface how could you possibly have the trinity there if you've got a simple god but people will go well look no 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 like simplicity has to be compatible with the trinity because the early church fathers affirmed it uh they affirmed trinity and simplicity together but if there was a conflict like they would have noticed it uh, but not only that, you know, these people will say, like, the church fathers saw simplicity as, like, safeguarding the trinity. And so this is kind of the way they'll try mm-hmm. to, like, set up the dialect of the debate. And I don't find this persuasive. And here's why. First, if the early church fathers thought that simplicity was so crucial to the doctrine of, of the trinity, I don't know, maybe they should have, like, mentioned it in, like, an ecumenical creed. But the Nicene Creed makes no mention of it. And so that's kind of curious. Hmm. Second, uh, lots of people don't notice contradictions in their own thinking. Like this is incredibly pervasive, like in in like in our own like in human thought. Like we often do not notice a contradiction in our own thinking. Even when people like point out contradictions in our in our thinking, we still like just like dig our heels in and go, "I no, no, it's not there." And so this idea of like, oh, the, well, they would have noticed a contradiction. Like we don't notice contradictions all the time. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Do, have you met a human? Surely you've met a human before. Mm-hmm. Uh, third, lots of philosophers and theologians in the past and today have pointed out that there is a direct contradiction. And so what needs to be done is you need to remove the contradiction. Here's how you get the contradiction. So the doctrine of the Trinity says that the father, son, and Holy spirit are not identical. Simplicity says that anything intrinsic to God is identical to God. And so I've repeated that line a few times. I'll repeat it again. Simplicity says that anything intrinsic to God is identical to God. All that is in God is God. Well, Father, Son, Holy Spirit—they are intrinsic to God. So that means the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—they're identical to God, which then entails that they're identical to each other because that's how identity works. Identity is transitive. So you've got a contradiction: the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—they're identical, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not identical. So, ooh, okay, you got this contradiction. Again, it seems like you should be like, oh, okay, pile, like game over, like this is not, this is not working. Now. A classical theist named Tim Paul, he points out that you cannot appeal to ineffable mystery in the face of a derived contradiction. And so what what we've done here just now is we've derived a contradiction. So the classical theist cannot appeal to mystery at this point. Instead, you got to pinpoint where in the argument, which premise you want to reject and why you reject it in order to remove the contradiction. That's where the dialectic stands, I think.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Um, right now we're gonna go um to two kind of like responses to classical theists, and then we'll open up for the last ten minutes if there's um questions or if you want to split the shake and send in to super chat. Um do those in just a few minutes here if there's any of those. Um but one kind of like strong argument for divine simplicity um we've brought up repeatedly so far is this idea of just tradition. Like there's this constant tradition uh with until like maybe like the nineteenth or eighteenth century of nearly everyone if everyone affirming divine simplicity. It's only these like these crazy people in the last like 50 hundred years that have kind of denied the doctrine um so how do you respond to that kind of objection to divine simplicity or Mm -hmm. kind of objection to um no objection just divine simplicity
1: right 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 yeah yeah so what first thing i would say is like which tradition because simplicity is not even mentioned in the ecumenical creeds nor is it even gestured towards when you look at your average statement of faith that you find today at churches and christian universities of course when you look at like your average statement of faith today like you know, they're not terribly interested in the doctrine of God, but that's a different story for a different day. So here's the thing though, like the Christian tradition says lots of things, many of which people disagree with today. I have not met anyone who agrees with everything in the so-called Christian tradition. Like I've not met anyone that affirms everything that has been held in the past. Every theologian and philosopher that I'm aware of cherry picks which part of the broad Christian tradition that they wish to affirm. And I don't think it could be any other way. Because when you look at the actual like like church history, you, what you see is a continual evolution of ideas, constant debates, and reformulations of various ideas. And there's this constant like drawing the lines of what counts as heresy, and then like you f- you know, a few decades later, they'll like redraw the lines and be like, "Oh no, actually, that's orthodoxy, and this other thing's heresy." You see this constantly throughout the church uh, like history. So, which it, to me, it actually makes a lot of sense um, because the tradition, like whatever that is it's not the only source for Christian theology. Like, Christian theology has multiple sources like scripture, reason, and experience. And in scripture, it's supposed to have like, the most weight and authority for the church uh, and for theologians, but you know, it doesn't usually seem to be the way it goes. So here's, I guess, how I see it. When I look at Augustine or like, Gregory of Nazianzus or like, you know, other like, early church fathers, what they tell me is that they want me to judge their arguments on the basis of scripture and reason. That's what they say, judge my arguments. And so that's exactly what I do. Well, the Bible knows nothing of a simple God and the Bible consistently paints a picture of God that directly contradicts classical theism. And so there are lots of biblical and reasonable objections to divine simplicity. And there are also lots of ways of undercutting all the traditional arguments in favor of divine simplicity. So why should I keep affirming the doctrine of divine simplicity? Because a bunch of dead guys said so? No. What they told me to do was judge their arguments. I did that. I found them wanting. Now we move on. So it can't just be the tradition. It has to be, I, you know, I think it's just something else here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another one of these worries that comes up is this idea of like tritheism or multiple gods, like opening the door to polytheism, something also you brought up in the beginning of this interview. Um, and it's an interesting objection. I read it in um, Ed Fazer's like five proofs of the existence of God. He brings this up. And I think it's kind of common now where if you had divine simplicity, because maybe God has parts or something like that maybe you open the door, there being multiple gods, or things along these lines. Um, so before we get into like, maybe like the like, brute contingency idea, um, how or brute facts, like how would you respond to like tritheism or something along mm-hmm. these lines worry um,
1: denying by simplicity? I, I find this argument really odd. I found it very curious when I first saw it, I couldn't spot what the argument was supposed to be. And I still can't really spot what the argument is supposed to be. I, I guess here's why. So, so when you look when you look at divine simplicity, if you're denying divine simplicity, you're not automatically committed to the claim that God has all these parts. Uh, because what what this argument's relying on is a v- overly permissive to mystic understanding of what counts as a part. And you can easily just go, I don't think properties are parts, or especially not essential properties. Why would I have to think a thing like that? I don't why would I think that existence is a part? That's that's really mm-hmm. odd to me. Is so when I'm denying divine simplicity, what I'm doing is I'm saying that God essentially has certain attributes like maximal power and maximal knowledge. And and am I saying that God's power is identical to God? No, because I'm saying that attributes are not identical to the substances that they inhere in. And well, does that like God's power somehow constitute like a deity, like some sort of little God that's like floating free from him? Well, of course not. Like God's essential power existentially depends upon God and it essentially inheres in God. So God's power is not like some place, not somehow like free floating from God. It's metaphysically impossible for God's power to float free from God. Moreover, the suggestion that like this free-floating like property, like you know, like maximal power, like the suggestion that it could somehow be a God by itself—I mean, that is utterly preposterous. Like, in order to be God, one must be a perfect being, which is the ultimate foundation of reality. And so, to be God involves having all of the great-making properties or attributes uh, to the, and, and having them to the maximal degree of intensity. But this polytheism objection is saying that like a great making property just by itself would somehow be a god. And that just doesn't make any sense because a single great making attribute by itself, well, it doesn't have all of the great making attributes and it can't be the ultimate foundation of reality. So I think this like this this polytheism objection is just so deeply confused. I don't think we should even consider it anymore. I think we should just put it to bed and and find a different argument that's actually got some teeth to it.
0: Mm. Fair. Um, I see how you feel about that. Um, <laughs> so we're gonna, um, I have one more question for you and then we'll open up to um, questions or anything like that in a minute. Um, so one of the ideas is like, as a theist like we like to think that like God is necessary. He's maximally great. Um, he's limitless, like th- things like this, um, a perfect being. Um, one of the words that may come up is if we say that, well, maybe God has parts, um, is the idea of, well, maybe there's these like brute facts like, around God or root necessities. Like couldn't God just had like other parts or things along these lines. If we're going to grant that God has parts, um. So how would you respond to that kind of a word with regards to the uh, doctrine of uh, divine simplicity?
1: Yeah. So two things. One, again, when you're denying that God, when you're denying divine simplicity, you're not necessarily committed to saying God has parts. So it, again, it's just, this is all relying on this overly permissive to mystic understanding of parts where absolutely everything under the sun counts as a part. So you can just say, I don't want to affirm that at all. Like that's just, that's just uh, mm-hmm. unintuitive. Another thing you'd want to say is, well, why should I think that's a brute necessity? So the brute here meaning inexplicable. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's not inexplicable why God necessarily exists because God has a nature such that he necessarily exists. That's the explanation. God is the attribute of necessary existence. That's the explanation. Could he have another like attribute like, like contingent existence? Well, no, no, because part of what it means to be God is to be absolutely perfect being. That is the single ultimate crown or foundation of reality. So part of the just, the just follows from the concept of God that he's going to have to be a necessarily existent being. And he has a nature such that he necessarily exists. You've got, it's not brute. You've got an explanation. There you go. Uh, it doesn't somehow like become brute just because you denied that it's like God's identical to his existence. And, and I just don't think that follows
0: yeah great thank you uh, so what we'll do now is a couple of questions that we'll bring up here we did have a super checker mm-hmm. super check, checker i'm not playing checkers um uh, super chat from city fredo so we appreciate the super sticker um and he did have a question um where he says um you can't come up with questions because he can't pin down your position ryan um mm-hmm. so we talked a lot about like divine simplicity um but we didn't ask you like what do you believe totally. with regards to like your doctrine of god um and understanding this question so that may be helpful at the end of this as we talked about everything that you um don't believe
1: so what do you think right, right? no that's a real that is really. Good point. Um, so on my understanding, I would say that uh, God is is a unified being instead of a simple being. What that means is God has all of his central attributes or properties necessarily, but that just follows because they're essential. Uh and God has all of these attributes uh, in a way that they're such that they're coextensive, they're necessarily coextensive, meaning you're not going to find them with one without the other. And so you see this in various medieval uh, theologians like Al Ghazali, who in the Middle Ages pointed out that a lot of the assumptions at play in, in, the, in uh, trying to like develop arguments for simplicity, he's like, those are kind of dubious. We can get rid of those. So there's been a long tradition of pointing this out and saying this sort of thing. So that's part of what I would say about the essence of God. Uh, I would also say that God is an eternal being that he exists without beginning, without end, but I would say he's temporal. Um, because God can undergo succession. He can do one thing and then another, and he exists right now. And if God's timeless, all of that's false. Uh, God does not undergo succession. He doesn't exist right now. He doesn't have any temporal location. Um, and so I'm like, well, that's a bit difficult to square with the, the biblical claims about God having a past and having a future and existing right now. Mm-hmm. it's also really difficult to square with the claim that God is omnipresent, that he is wholly located right here, right now. So yeah um so yeah so those are some of the claims i would make about god uh there's a lot more i would say but i mean i, I don't know how much how much time we have so
0: yeah i know we're good we probably have about um, mm-hmm. like 15 minutes left if that works for you Go. um mm-hmm. so we have a question here from kelvy i think it's talking about um maybe like the pure act idea but god has action or god is his action um has has word or is his word or both um so maybe kind of breaking down like what it means to like with the to be divine simplicity and such but like what are your thoughts here ryan
1: yeah. So if you affirm divine simplicity, you're going to have to say that God is his action. He doesn't have actions. He is his action. Uh, whereas if you're denying divine simplicity, like I do, then you're going to say, well, God performs actions. He has actions. So God wasn't always creating universe. And then he's like, yeah, that'd be fun. I'll do that. God wasn't always entering into a covenant or relationship with Moses. And then he's like, Yeah, okay, I'll do that. That sounds good. Hey, Moses, come over here. I got a plan for you. Um, so these are like new actions that God performs. They're potential that God exercises. Uh, like a, it's a power that he exercises, potential that he has that he actualizes. Um, whereas if it's, if you're saying simplicity, they're going to have to say he's identical to his act. He just is his act. Um, yeah. And same thing with does he have a word? Uh, I'm assuming this is a capitalized word. It's referring to like uh, the, the son, like the second person of the Trinity. Uh, well, the Trinity is supposed to say like, well, God think God, the Son like is not identical to, uh, like, like they're not identical to each other, but, um, but that's where it gets difficult. We talked about that earlier. Yeah.
0: Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Um, We Mm -hmm. have a question here from Chad McIntosh, which says, um, how does God's nature or being necessary explain his being? Um, There are other things that are necessary by nature that are explained by other things, um, for example, numbers. Um, So Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts here, Ryan?
1: Yeah, I, I, okay, because Chad and I have talked about this before in the past as well. I find some of the arguments um, a bit odd. So I want to say that necessity is where explanation is supposed to bottom out. And so I know a lot of other people want to go, well, like numbers or maybe these other abstracted, like they depend upon God. Um, and so then you can say, well, ah, well, we've got this deeper explanation into the story here. Uh, so, like, why are they necessary? Well, because God causes them to exist necessarily. And I want to go, I don't know if that's right, um, because it seems to me that necessity is supposed to be the natural stopping point. If I have to ex- ask, why is something necessary? Then I feel like I'm not talking about a necessary thing anymore um but that's just like an intuition that i have and i've seen some other like people develop these kind of arguments too uh, like swinburne does this like for instance he'll be like necessity is the natural stopping point you can't ask like why something necessary just is uh, i always say the same, same thing about god and i always say the same thing about numbers and other abstracta but mm, yeah
0: yeah. Um, well thank you. Um uh, we do have a super chat from C Fredo, so I really appreciate your super chat um and your support. He says, uh without being timeless, how would God um create a universe if temporal? Isn't saying it nece- a necessary um a- atheistic explanation? Um so we wanna break this down a little bit, Ryan.
1: I guess I don't understand how an explanation of God creating a universe could be an atheistic explanation because I've got God creating a universe. So that's the first, I guess, kind of comment. Um Now, to say that God is timeless means that God exists without beginning, without end, without succession, and without temporal location. Uh, To say that God creates a universe out of nothing, which is the Christian claim, is that you've got a state of affairs where God exists all alone, and and then a state of affairs where God exists with the universe. Well, that looks like succession. So it looks like God's existing by himself, and then God exists with the universe. And so that seems like that's a temporal claim, where God exists without beginning, without end, and then with succession. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm not seeing how uh, a, a God that exists that creates a universe could be an atheistic explanation. Yeah. And I, I think I'm missing the the point.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, feel free to clarify if you want to, for, for to do a little bit of yeah. time. Um, mm-hmm. um, so Chad Mackintosh, another um, objection here, which he says um, God is not dependent only if God is simple. If God is not simple, God is dependent. If, if dependent, not perfect. How do you respond to this objection? Because it kind of sounds like checkmate, Ryan, you got to mm-hmm. pack your bags and go home here
1: yeah so god is not dependent only if god is simple um god is not dependent only if god is simple like can chad like explain a little bit more like if god is not simple god is dependent uh yeah because i don't see like what the dependency is okay um yeah because well. mm-hmm. i understand the idea of like god's not simple god's not dependent but i just want to go but well, why should i think if he's not simple that he would be dependent on on what um i don't yeah that's what i that's what i'm missing
0: yeah well we can go to a, d- a different question for the moment and yeah to kind of clarify chad we can get back to that um but we have a, a little bit related but a little bit different here um where lucre says if if we say god isn't timeless are we stuck affirming in a theory of time um yeah. so kind of getting into your work in philosophy of time here ryan so what do you think
1: yeah uh so i've got a recent paper that i just published called divine temporality and providential bodgery where i kind of develop this argument more and then in my new book i'm going to be do, doing it even further Basically, the claim is you can affirm any theory of time you want and any ontology of time that you want, and still say that God's temporal. Like, mm-hmm. you could affirm an eternalist story, you could affirm a moving spotlight, you could affirm this weird, crazy fragmentalism stuff, you can affirm like a hyper time, you can affirm whatever you want, and still say God's temporal. Um, so, mm-hmm. if you're st- if you want to deny divine timelessness, you've got a lot of options. Uh, I don't think they're all good options, but you've got a lot of options at least.
0: Mm-hmm. One thing I kind of, I, I was wondering about, you talked about um a little bit, like it seems like you hinted earlier about like the importance of the doctrine of God and like, like thinking about these things. Cause I was thinking about it. Um, I like I go to a Christian university and you know, you take like theology class and like study, like biblical studies classes, like basic gen eds and like things like classical theism or something that never come up in these classes. Like, do you think that this, like, how important is this like understanding like this doctrine of God, at least from your perspective here?
1: I, I've, I've struggled with this question a lot too, because I, I, I went through my entire undergrad without this doctrine ever coming up in class. Like I, it came up in my own studies because I was reading like Aquinas and stuff on the side, but, and I remember asking some professors about it, but they just kind of went, that's not biblical. No. And then that was it. That was the end of it. Like, like I never got a discussion of it. And so I was like, how important is this? And when I got to my masters, one of my professors was like going on and on about like it's super important, it's so important that we reclaim this doctrine. Uh, but he just kept asserting that it was important. He never got to like why is it important. Uh, and I, I don't know, because um, it seems to me if you, if if it's supposed to like safeguard different doctrines, like the Trinity or something, all you got to do is just come up with a different way to safeguard it. And there's a m- million different models uh, available in Trinity about how to safeguard that without simplicity. And so you could go okay well then i don't need it to safeguard simplicity uh it's supposed to safeguard the doctrine of creation ex nihilo i'm like well actually i've got arguments for why it's inconsistent with the doctrine of creation ex nihilo so i certainly don't need it to like safeguard that do i need it for like my prayer life i feel, I feel like my grandmother's prayer life is pretty good um she doesn't she wouldn't she wouldn't know like what the doctrine of divine simplicity is if it hit her in the face um but i'm pretty sure her prayer life's good so like i don't i don't I don't know, um, but maybe again, like I mentioned earlier, like maybe I'm just denying the entirety of Christian doctrine and just worshiping Zeus. I mean, that, these are all possibilities, I I don't know. I-
0: yeah, I guess. See, um, uh, Fredo um, clarified his question. Oh, he cool. says, uh, for, for clarity, if God is not timeless and is within time and space, um, how can he really create it? Um, if he creates it outside of time, mm-hmm. is he transcendental? Um, if within time, how to create the universe? I think this might help. So do you think your mind?
1: Yeah, that's, that's okay. Now I get what you're saying. Yeah. So if you're claiming that God creates time, then you're like, well, how could it be temporal? Well, here's the crazy thing I want to do. I want to deny that God creates time. Um, I want to say that time is an attribute of God. Uh, how, how, how many, how much left do we have on the video? i I'm I trying mean, to think if I can explain this.
0: No, I was planning for about like 10 minutes. If you want over, like I'm not in like a rush to get out here mm-hmm. and, like never have to talk to you again. Um, so free to take your sure. <laughs> time as you need to pack, unpack this.
1: Okay. So I'll try to be brief and I'll just say, uh, I've got a paper that's, that's coming out soon and I've done some other videos on this. Um, so here's my thinking in a nutshell, at least, uh, this is not going to be deeply satisfying because it's just in a nutshell, so I want to say time is a natured entity that makes change possible. It is the source of moments, and it's the thing that unifies a series of moments. Uh, and so what God is, is a natured entity that makes change possible. He's the source of moments, and he's the thing that unifies a series of moments. So I want to say like time is identified with God in some sense. The time is an attribute of God. Uh, that sounds crazy, um, but Isaac Newton uh, is someone who affirmed this view. Uh, there's a lot of people during the scientific revolution that affirm this view. And then, when you look in the Hindu tradition, there's actually a really long tradition of affirming this view. Um, so you would be saying God's temporal, and He's not creating time; He's creating a universe because He's creating like a contingent, like collection of spatio-temporal like objects, but He's not creating time itself. And then I also think it's a biblical view uh, to some extent, um, because the earliest time mentioned in Scripture is that of the reality prior to creation. Uh, so. Yeah. So basically I'm just going to deny that, that God creates time. Uh, that's the, I guess that's a, the, sh- the quickest answer to your, yeah. To your claim. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is a, this is a good question. This is the right objection to bring up. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Great. Um, and also Chad clarified, so good. perfect timing for both of you guys. Um, he says, if not simple, then dependent on his properties, attributes, parts, mill, um, um, constituents, whatever. Um, yeah, that may help back to your original yeah. question here. I'll pull that back up.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's can good. Switch okay. back
0: if you needed to go back and forth. Um, yeah, so,
1: I'm so there's some weird claims going on in metaphysics here that um, to be aware of. So it does seem like if God has properties, he might say he's dependent upon those properties. Um, and so one kind of claim you might see is that he's essentially dependent on, on his properties. Well, there's also this other like kind of way the dependency goes, which is that, well, properties, they their existence depends upon being instantiated by um, a substance at least that's the claim I want to make. And some others like Kit Fine want to make. So it'd be like, okay, well, God has this thing called essential dependence on his properties, but God's properties have existential dependence on God uh, because properties cannot be like floating free from the, the substances that they in in uh, on the kind of story that I'm under, the way I'm seeing the world. So you've got this sort of, I guess you could say maybe like a mutual dependence um, between God and his properties. And I, I, guess I just don't really see what the problem is that like God would essentially have his properties, but his properties like ooh, they're dependent on God in order for, to exist. Um So yeah, you'd have God depending on his property of necessary existence in order to exist, but then God's property of necessary existence depends upon God to exist. And I'm like, it doesn't, is that, is that really a problem? That, I don't know. It seems like a weird problem if it, if it is a problem, but um, I don't know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's great I'll have to ch-
1: to I'll, I'll, uh, I'll ask Chad more about it later. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, you, you philosophers, you're so smart. Um, and thank you so much, Chad, for your super chat. I really appreciate um, you and supporting and everything like that. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking with Ryan here. Uh, we do have another question here from QRT. I think we're just we're, we're bouncing between like divine simplicity and God's relationship with sure. time, um, which says, um, would this be equivalent to saying that God um, eternally wills time? So getting back into like your theory with regards mm. to, like God and time.
1: No, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, so no, it wouldn't be because it would be saying that God uh, or that time is an aspect of God's nature. Um, so God doesn't will uh, that time exists because it would be like saying does God will himself to be like to to just exist or does God will himself to have power? No, um, because it's part of his nature. And so the same thing would be the claim about time. What you would have though is God would be willing certain moments of time to to, to be the case. So the moment of time where the universe begins to exist, God would be willing that, bringing that about, because time is the, is the natured entity that like, is the source of moments, and so it's what unifies a series of moments. So you'd have God, time itself, bringing about moments of time. Um, and so that would be what God's will would come into the story, would be bringing about moments of time
0: awesome well thank you so much it ended up Mm -hmm. the timing worked out pretty well ryan um so we covered a lot of ground is there anything that you want to like share that you get to say anything along these lines um and feel free to like share like how people can like follow you and your work and stuff as well um
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i guess my final thought is there's a lot to be debated here so all i've done is just given like a quick summary of like some different arguments and stuff there's a lot of nuance here uh, and a lot of different claims within metaphysics um So I think that's what we need to be doing today is when we're looking at these different models of God and different understandings of the divine nature, we need to be looking at scripture and we need to be looking at the philosophical claims that are at play here and try to figure out what really does make the best sense of scripture. Um, So then people, if they want to follow my work, they can go to rtmullins.com and find a, a lot of my stuff there. They can also listen to the Reluctant Theologian podcast. Uh, where I talk about these issues and a whole bunch of others I've got a, even got a great episode with Chad McIntosh on uh, austerity and simplicity in the trinity um so there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of interesting stuff going on and you can find it all there
0: yeah uh it's great and it's a great podcast mm-hmm. i remember that you listening to the episode with you and chad was the first time i ever listened to you guys because like yeah. people that talk about the trinity and like say like don't go to like just say it's a mystery and like pack it up and go home so mm-hmm. it's great i'm curious yeah. just one thought why the reluctant theologian i've never thought about that but
1: oh um it's because when i look at a lot of theology i'm like it's just it's really mushy-minded thinking a lot of times mm-hmm. uh and <sighs> Yeah, I didn't always want to do this. I was kind of there's a lot of days where I'm like reading theology and going, oh gosh, like this is what I got a PhD in. Like, yeah, you know, I should have just done a PhD just in just pure philosophy instead. Um, but then I do feel like God calling me to to keep being a theologian and keep doing theology stuff. And so I'm like, okay, fine, fine, I'll reluctantly do this. Sure.
0: That was awesome, Ryan. Um, Thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun. I encourage everyone um, to check out Ryan's work and everything that he's got on there. Um, And I think live in Apologetic March Madden stuff, you can go vote for Ryan somewhere and Um, something like that. Uh, So it's been so much fun, Ryan. I encourage everyone, if you're new here, as always, um, be sure to subscribe um, to our YouTube channel or podcast, however you're listening. Thank you so much. Um, Then be sure to leave a like, leave a review. It helps. And if you enjoy the show, you can um, just press the join button, become a member on YouTube, or you can go on patreon.com slash Apologetics. We start for as little as a dollar a month. So appreciate everyone's support through there. Uh, But Ryan, one last time, thank you so much for your time. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Cool. Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. And thank you everyone who tuned in, Kiriti, Chad, Sehi,
1: Fredo, Luker, Susan, everyone else. Have a good one and God bless.